welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. And normally what we do here uh, is we'd talk a little bit, and then I would tease the guest. Right. And then we'd bring the guest in. Mm-hmm. And they would usually start with, so uh, where's the story of begin? Right. And then we'd, we'd all go along on this journey with that person. I love those shows. I do, too. Yeah. Unfortunately, today's not one of those shows. Uh, we don't have a guest today. No. Nope. Uh, and that happens. You know, and when, when we get our guests, what people always ask, they go, hey, how do I get on your show? Well, just reach out. If you've got a story you want to tell. Showing up helps. Yeah, it yeah. does. It that does help. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of people out there that want to share their story. And time to time, I will go through our Facebook uh, posts and our comments. And, and some people will fight back and forth with other people who've told their story. And what I always tell people is, this is their story. Yeah. You know, and this is what their truth is. And this is what means there was There was conversation years ago uh, when we first started, like, should we vet everybody's story? Should we look into it, make sure everything they're saying is true? One, we don't have the personnel. Nor is that even really possible, right? And actually, I prefer to just have somebody come on and give us their version of their life because your version of your life is different than other people who know you. And if they told your version, it wouldn't be the same as yours. And, and, and I, I, I feel bad because I don't remember her name. We've been doing this for five years and over 300 podcasts. But at one point we had this lovely lady on and she came on and she was married to an alcoholic and she told her story mm-hmm. and she left it all out there. And uh, when she was said and done, we, we posted it and it, it started to gain some attention and her ex-husband reached out to me. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh, my gosh, here we go. He is just going to come up here and pick this apart. And he goes, I want to be on your podcast. And I go, hey, listen, I, I want I want to have both sides of the story on here. But I can't have you on the podcast just going back and forth with her. And he's like, no, I want to be on and, and tell and, my story. And tell my story. But it's pretty close to hers. <laughs> Everything yeah. she said is true. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just want to put an exclamation point on it. And, you know, I was like, wow. Oh, I remember them. You, you know, and, yeah. it, you know, it was Brian Bush. I No. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, I mean, but it was, it was fascinating because my truth and your truth aren't always the same truths. Right. And the experience is relative to what you remember and how you experienced it. And there's there's were basically the same story, just with a slightly different point of view, which makes sense. Now, I grew up in the same house as my older brother and younger brother. Mm-hmm. And if you sat us down and asked us about our childhood, right, we have a lot of similarities, but we also have three completely different versions. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a term for that in, in research. Oh, um, so they'll do it comes up a lot in twin studies. So like. If, you know, psychologists love to study twins, they have the same, you know, DNA and all of that kind of stuff and and ideally the same experiences. But they actually have what we call non-shared experiences. And that's how even with identical twins growing up in the same household at the same time, at the same age, will not necessarily have the exact same personalities because there are, are many, many shared experiences, but there are a bunch of non-shared experiences. And those non-shared experiences make us uniquely who we are. So even a husband and wife who go through something like addiction, and then they come on talk about our show, most of what they said was the same, mm-hmm. but they have those non-shared experiences. What was going on in his head? What was going on in her head? You know, Their motivations that they didn't share with each other. And that makes us unique and different. And so that's what I love about this podcast is the ability for people to share their stories. Yeah. 
their stories. And you've heard a lot of people who get on the podcast and be in a relationship with addiction or, you know, have a family member addiction. And they will say, that's their story. Mm-hmm. I don't want to tell their story. I'm here to tell my side of the story, my truth, you know, my feelings and my uh, interpretation and of the don't events. Don't you think that a lot of people, including our just some recent guests, they've they're they're just without us prompting them, pretty respectful of that. Like uh, we had a guest recently who said, "Well, that's his story to tell. I don't want to tell his story, but here's what happened with me." And and that's just I think people are mindful of not trying to tell someone else's story. Well, and that's a big no no in the recovery world. Right. Is 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 telling people's story. It's kind of like um and I don't know if there's a parallel. Maybe there is. But when somebody is coming out and announcing that they're, you know they're, they're they're gay or whatever, you didn't want to ever do that for somebody else because that's their no. story. Yeah. You, yeah, you know right. what I mean? And and, yeah. and and it's not my place to do. Yeah, because that's very personal, right? Yeah. And I think people's stories are very personal. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so today's going to be a little bit different. And uh, the great thing about having your best friend being a a, a doctor <laughs> is that he's wicked smart, y'all. And uh, he Set brings me some, up. What if I say something some, dumb? Well, we all say something <laughs> dumb. We can't get away from it. But you're research backed, and you've got some information. I do like I do like numbers and facts. And uh, Josh, swing your mic over real quick because yeah. we're gonna have a little uh, question right. and answer, right? Well, this is what we're gonna do. So I thought I thought we'd start off the show mm-hmm. with some science news, but. I have options. Ooh. Options make you feel good. So I would throw some out there. I want you both to pick My girlfriend one. says, hey, everybody loves options. I promise options. not to make these last. <laughs> Everyone does like options. So you ready? You ready to hear what we got? Well, Josh is making sure his mic's on. Okay, just okay. scream out loud. You just yell it out. Okay. So n- now you want you probably want to hear them all first. Well, so are we starting with the science first? Is that what we're these doing? These are science ones. Do okay. you want to do that now? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. in. Well, it's up to you. Yeah. You're the, you're the man. You're the, I don't know you're about the that. talent. Let's go. You're the talent. I am. Hitting the snooze button may provide cognitive benefit. Ooh, because mm. I'm an avid snooze button hitter. Okay, so you might want to. You might want to hold on. There's more, but that might be one. Marijuana use dramatically increases risk of heart problems and stroke. Ooh. Not quite as fun no. as the snooze button, but but I think uh, well, good to know. I think more people snooze yeah. than hit the marijuana. Oh, I don't know. Uh, running versus meds for depression. Is there a clear winner? Ooh. Because you know, people used to say exercise helps your mood, and maybe, well, I, maybe I, one is better than. I the other. feel like exercise really helps me with my mental uh, stability, mm-hmm. and I also I, hear. I often, thought of you when I got often that one. hear a lot of runners talk about the runner's high, runner's high, if yeah. you will, and and people debate is that a real thing? And and I used to run quite a bit, but there is a euphoric feeling comes yeah. little after. My, uh, 1.5 miles for me. Well, you always say that's, you know, exercise, working out, that's one of your main Pillars. modalities to yeah. stay sober. And uh, I thought of you when I read that because I think this is about running, but, you know, exercise in general. Uh, we have another one here. Teens have easy online access to Delta 8 cannab- cannabinoids. I never say that correctly. Mm-hmm. And their products. They can get weed online, cannabinoid. And see, D3, I, Delta 8, De, not D3, Delta 8, D8, online. I don't know enough about that, what that well, means. Stick around. You might learn something. Online nicotine toothpick vendors ignore age restrictions. I didn't even know that was a thing, and I wanted to know if you knew about nicotine toothpicks. I can't, I can't think that it's much different than the Zins, you know, which is well, just 
a nicotine in its purest form. You're going to have there's to no choose tobacco. it if you want to learn about I it. I would like to do two or three. Okay. Um, well, Josh, you have a preference on any of those? Snooze. Okay. I like that one. Let's pick one more, and then you guys think about a third for later. Okay, uh, we, got, we got the snooze, and we got we got uh, marijuana gives your heart attack. Nope. Running versus medicine for that depression. One. That's that the one. one. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. You don't, you don't care about toothpicks, huh? All no, right. I, I I do, but we'll maybe pick we'll one get more. to we that have one. Time. If we have time. Okay, we'll be we thinking about it. But let's go to the snooze because okay. I think that's fascinating for somebody who has to use an alarm clock every morning to yeah. get up. Because I get up anywhere between four and four thirty every morning to start my day. Oh, I know you do. And so depending on you that, you showed up with a camera crew at my house at five thirty. About killed me. And and that means I've been up for an hour before that <laughs> no, just to get there. I know. And so I think a lot of people, and I think there's a sweet spot when hitting snooze and i think it's two to three two to three times yeah so how many minutes would that be i think because i just i just do the standard eight that it gives you on the Uh iphone and so it's about every eight minutes i believe so about every eight minutes so 24 minutes if you hit it three times but sometimes yeah. if I've got to get up that early, I plan for snoozing time. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't have a hard like out. Then. You're going to like this. So so this is actually, I'm, I'm going to sort of combine the, the results of two studies because they did two different studies that looked at the difference between people who just get right out of bed mm-hmm. versus people who hit the snooze button and how often and how long it takes before they get out of bed. All right. And the things they were looking at were things like, Um, How much does it affect your sleep? Like, are you really still getting enough sleep? That was one thing. Uh, Cognition. So that's just, you know, like decision making, problem solving, being organized. You know, can you find what you need in the morning? That kind of stuff. Uh, Cortisol, which is an indication of stress in your body and just your overall mood. So some pretty important things that they studied and uh, I'm and they compared it uh, no, that's a different study. But these two studies looked at the difference between uh, having about 20 minutes of snooze time, hitting the alarm, and they didn't say how many times, but 20 minutes of, of snoozing versus 30 minutes of snoozing. Is 30 better than 20? Well, what do you think? Well, no, because I think there's that sweet spot. I think 20, you know, you go, there, there's a relief when you go, oh, I can snooze a little. And so you can go back and maybe try to get back into that dream. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know what I mean? Or you go, hey, look, it's, it's, I don't have to get up and rush. I've, I've got a little bit of time. But 30, I think you're pushing it and you're kind of dragging. <laughs> yeah. Well, they did find that uh, with 30 minutes of snooze time, you did lose about six minutes of quality sleep. Yeah. Which is surprisingly to me that that's that low, but, but, you know, six minutes here or there maybe doesn't make a difference, but you do lose that. But the, the longer time, uh, was more associated with, uh, uh, helping a person have, uh, let's see, the findings indicate that there's no reason to stop snoozing in the morning. If you enjoy it, at least not if you snooze for around 30 minutes. Um, in fact, it may even help with drowsiness and be slightly more awake. So people who had about 30 minutes of snoozing, did fine, just the same as people who didn't snooze on cognitive tests. Mm-hmm. They did not have any more cortisol in their blood. They actually reported a slightly better mood, and they did lose about six minutes of sleep. So the funny thing is, if you only snooze a little bit, then you might still feel very groggy when you get up in the morning. And they attribute that to you're pulling yourself up out of a slow wave sleep or deep sleep, oh. right? 
My dad's a funny guy because so he, basically hitting uh, the snooze button is like priming the pump to get exactly. up. Exactly, you That's don't want to just fire it, it yeah. right out of the gate because right. you're not there yet. And I used to say that, or my ex-wife did all the time to the kids. And when they'd wake up from their nap, she would be like, "Oh, they're not in their body yet." Huh? That's a good you, you know way what I mean because because yeah. they, they were just kind of still lethargic, kind of just lackadaisical, and they were like, "Oh, they're not all the way in there yet." Right? Yeah, that's a good way to say it. My dad said that he, when he was younger, had a hard time getting up early, and all my life he got up really early. So when his alarm would go off, he would just like jump out of bed, and it would scare my mom. She didn't like that. That was his way of like jump starting things. But he's a little bit tougher than I am, so have, I use the snooze. Have you ever <laughs> seen the alarm clock that uh, it's a shape as a baseball, and it's also on wheels? Oh, and so yeah. what you do is you have it next to your nightstand. It goes off, and then you it hit rolls snooze, away. and then you throw it. Oh, you throw it, and yeah. then and then it just rolls around the the, the bedroom, and then the next time you have it. to get up, you have to find it. Yeah, and yeah. Then, yeah, yeah, which is pretty cool. I've seen that one, and they have the robot one that actually it goes off, and then after you hit snooze, it it drives off your and falls and rolls around. You have to it yeah. hides from you. I love you have it. To find that. Anyway, that's just kind of fun. But uh, if anybody's giving you a hard time about snoozing, you can tell them that if I snooze about 30 minutes, I'm actually a little better off. So what Dr. Matt is saying, yep. if you snooze, you don't lose. You don't lose. No. You win. So Check. what is the runner's high a thing? Is the runner's, yeah, absolutely. It's sort of, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that I know it well enough to explain the physiology, but nobody wants to hear that anyway. But it's just, it's a rush of endorphins mm-hmm. and adrenaline that uh, kind of propels you forward and actually enhances your mood. And the evolutionary idea there is probably that you're doing something really hard, but you need to keep doing it. So your body kind of gives you a little boost. Okay. If you want to think of it that way. Because but, when I was running a lot and uh, it, it's been a long time, I got a fake hip now. Uh, but uh, it usually seemed to take hold about a mile and a half into it. The first mile and a half, I don't care who you are of running, sucks. Uh, Pretty much even everybody I know uh, who runs a lot says the same thing. And then about a mile and a half, you start to get the little endorphin lift. And you're like, cool. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, and then you start listening to some good music and you're like, okay, I I can do this. I remember on the old TV show you used to do, uh, I came on and we had a whole segment where we talked about the psychology of that. Mm-hmm. And it was fun. Yeah. We had a lot of good feedback. And, that. you know, and you did mention it, but, uh, you know, for my recovery, uh, fitness is a big pillar. It is something that I lean on heavy uh, and, and that it really makes me feel good. And it makes me feel like I'm accomplishing something. And it gives me a task. It gives me a completion. And, and I just like it. Yeah. And, and you get that boost. You know, you're doing something healthy for yourself, but your body does pay you back when you exercise. You do get a boost and a lift that's physiological, not just mental. So, so what is the study saying? So I, I want to quiz you guys. So the, the, the study was uh, putting meds, traditional psychiatric medicine mm-hmm. against running, a running program that a mm-hmm. person does for a period of time. I'll tell you about that uh, for both anxiety and depression and According to this study, I want to, I want you guys to guess. Josh, what do you think wins overall for depression and anxiety? Meds treat it better or the running treats it better? No, running. Come on. Running. Running? I got to say running. Anything yeah. fitness? Yeah. Yeah. You're both wrong. Uh, Are we really? <laughs> well, it was a tie. It was a tie. Yeah, it I was like a tie. That half right. They, so on the one hand, you look at that and you think that's actually pretty impressive that just regular running that exercise of running can do the same thing that some of our very best medicines can do for anxiety and depression. But actually running does win. Do you know how running wins? 
because of the uh, other things that are come along with it. Running provides great. Oh, you're you're brilliant, dude. Greater physical health benefits uh, than than the drugs because the drugs can have some side effects mm-hmm. and they don't do anything to bolster your immune system, your cardiovascular system, um, and then the the mental, uh, the emotional part that comes along with being in shape. So a person who doesn't exercise and takes meds versus somebody who runs, uh, they might have about the same effect on their depression and anxiety, but the person who runs is still going to be the winner because their overall physical health is better, which they theorize will eventually improve your, uh, your mental health as well. But there is one drawback. <laughs> is you're not, you're running run, shoes are expensive? Uh, running shoes are expensive, and just running down to the sev to get a Slurpee isn't going to count. This was based on running involving 16 weeks of supervised 45-minute outdoor running. Yeah. Two, two to three times a week. So you had to, so you had to be serious about it. 16 weeks, 45 minutes a pop for two to three times a week. Uh, then, then it worked. But anything you know less than that wasn't studied. And the idea would be if it was less than that, it, the tie would be broken probably. I never want to discount meds because I think meds serve a purpose. Sure. And, and, and I think there's a place and a time for them. But I think if you're ever given the option. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would, if I was a doctor, I'm not. And I said, hey, look, I've got two things for you. We'd either get you running and get you active and get you motivated and get you out there. Right. Which is going to have about the same effect as if you take these meds. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, the exercise, the health benefits and everything that's going to go along with the running is going to pay off bigger for you in the end. Do you see one problem with that, though? Not everybody's capable of that kind of running right now. Yeah, right? no, and and, yeah. and I and I see that. And so, so there may be physical drawbacks. I think that's why you talk to your doctor, and maybe yeah. the doctor knows that and goes, "But hey, maybe we can start you on some lower meds here, get you walking, and you know, with the well, ultimate kind of, goal of getting you off of these and getting you back in shape." So the idea of what you're saying is something that actually we do a lot, and I appreciate. So I'm in the department of psychiatry, which is the medical department, even though I'm not a medical doctor, mm-hmm. and I provide a lot of. Uh, clinical therapy for people that have anxiety and depression. And it is not uncommon because uh, the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Utah is very psychologically minded, not just medicine minded. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon for me to get a direct message from one of the psychiatrists who says, you know, I have this person in my office and I could prescribe them some medicine, but I feel like maybe we could try about eight weeks of therapy first to see if that kind of pushes them up to where they need to be without necessarily starting the medicine. And that's a very common conversation I have with my colleagues where they'll come in and we'll do our best in therapy for a while. And it isn't uncommon for a person to feel like, you know what, this is making enough of a difference. And therapy nowadays isn't just what you see in the movies, you know, lay on the couch, complain about your mom kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But cognitive therapy is very active. It's a retraining of patterns of thinking and behavior. And the behavior we often prescribe, I often prescribe is mindfulness, meditation, exercise, and nutrition. Yeah. And those things combined over time can have a really benefit, huge benefit to a person. And if they're not making enough, then we call back the the doc and we say, hey, you know what? They're doing their best on this, but we still probably need some medicine because some people come by their depression and anxiety very genetically and, and without some 
boost to it's sort of like some people are really short yeah no <laughs> you I know get like it. like so you got some lifts for your shoes yeah like they you know some people do need that that's medicine. why i never discounted and, yeah and, and but and I, some I, people the medicine helps them get to a place where they can start running and doing other things and eventually they may not need to be on it you, you know, mentioned so. something that i think is fascinating and uh it was the behavioral aspect mm-hmm uh, and in the recovery world, because this is a podcast about addiction, there's a huge behavioral aspect of it. And I remember sure. sitting in recovery and finding out why I do the things that I do. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and then to, to figure out my addiction, to figure out my triggers, to figure out my drinking, we had to unpeel the the onion, if you will, or unpack the Look backpack inside. And, and figure out why I was doing the things that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was some great insight and a lot of lessons learned by that, but it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was some deep soul searching to figure out what am I really looking for? What am I running from? What am I hiding? What am I insecure about? And, and there were some why things. Why are you self-medicating? Why with? am I self-medicating? Yeah. You know, because on the outside uh, looking in, uh, here he had everything and everything seemed to be good. Right. Yeah. And I, and if the inside looking out, I was drowning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and just trying to keep it together. But nobody saw that. But nobody saw that. And so it, that's why I think the therapy is a, a genius idea. And that's why I tell anybody, if you're listening to this and you don't think you have a problem, you probably should see a therapist now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and yeah. I'm not saying you do, but there is so much good from just going to talk to a therapist because we never really get that opportunity to be open and vulnerable with somebody who has no skin in the game to find out why we do the things that we do. Yeah, you know, we we talk the talk a lot about not being judgmental, but almost everything in life has a judgment. Every book is judged by its cover, right? I mean, a lot of people are worried they're going to be judged when they come into therapy. But the truth is, if you're with a good therapist who knows what they're doing, they do create a non-judgmental place. I like to say we're shifting out of being judgmental sometimes even of ourselves when we're in therapy, into just understanding. The difference between judgment and understanding is vital for change. Yeah. If you understand a problem without judging it, you can now have the insight to create solutions. But if you're judging it, then it you just sort of devolve into good or bad, right or wrong, punishment, reward. But that's how we all grew you know? up. I mean, but, it was all good or bad. It was all it, judgment. It was all yeah. labels. It was everything. And yeah. and it was just easier to slap a label on it. And, and then <laughs> anybody who might have found themselves underneath that label yeah. was afraid to say anything. Oh, but, for sure. Be, yeah. Because they were like, holy cow, I saw what they did to them. And, I, and I'm feeling the same way, but I'm not going to say stuff. As a matter of fact, I'm going to jump on the other bandwagon. Well, it's still an issue. I mean, I work with teenagers all the time who don't want to get like uh, help in school for their ADHD because they don't want anybody to know they have ADHD and they don't want to feel different and, and strange. When in fact, ADHD is a problem of, you know, focus and impulsivity amongst other things, but it's not about IQ. So what you find is when you give a kid who has ADHD a little extra time to take a test, oh gosh, their scores are just as good as everybody else's. But in the old days when we grew up, uh, they thought those kids were not as smart because their scores were lower. They just needed- They spent most of the time an, sharpening his pencil. An accommodation. And, yeah, yeah, you're exactly. like, well, there's something wrong with this kid. Yeah. And no, he's got ADHD. So kids still worry about that, but it is getting better. Yeah. And, and, and I love the fact that kids are more likely to see a therapist these days. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it used to be, and, and still is somewhat, is that, you know, it was like- 
Well, let me tell you a funny story. So when a person comes in to see me, one of the things we talk about on the first visit is confidentiality. And I say, you know, you're the holder of the confidentiality. And so what that means is you can tell people you're coming into therapy. That's up to you. I don't. And Salt Lake is fairly small, believe it or not. And so it's likely that we might run into each other. They said the same thing to me in rehab. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say and I tell him, I say, so I, I won't. I won't say hi to you unless you come up and want to say hi to me. I don't mind talking to you in public, but that kind of blows your cover. So guess what? <laughs> Who's this? Yeah. Oh, he's a psychologist. <laughs> yeah. So guess what? The funny thing is, so I do run into people quite often, and older people will see me and do the whole turn like, hmm, you know, mm. like they walk away, or they'll give me like a little wink and walk on, you know. But teenagers are, I've had this Dr. several Matt, times. What's up? Exactly, and they're like, and I've had, I've, been, I met groups of friends. Where this is like, my guy right here. This is like, my guy. Like, hey, this is my therapist. Come in, come in, talk. And they're like, oh, we've heard about you. And people at at I these younger that. ages are embracing the idea of improving their lives through going to therapy, doing yoga, doing meditation. You know, having coaches like myself and other people that help them along the way. And uh, I think that's. Great, because that's what will bust up the stigma of, of mental health is just owning it and, and seeing the benefit of it, you know, and not being afraid to let your friends know like, oh, I have anxiety and I see Dr. Matt. You want to meet him? He's right there. He's you a know? great dude. Yeah. Look at his shoe game. It's on point. <laughs> when we were kids, uh, the strongest thing was to not ask for help, to push through, to Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Walk it off. Yeah. Rub some dirt on it. That's my favorite one. But this young new generation. Yeah. And we now find out in through the doing this podcast, the strongest thing you can ever do is ask for help. Yeah. I think owning the fact that you struggle with something and want to work on it and recognize we can't fix everything ourselves. Yeah. Uh is a very it's because it's scary. It's scary, but it is it is strength. I love these conversations because I love, we touch all over uh, so many different things. And I think somebody's at home listening to this and, and, and probably picked up some great tips, some great ideas, and maybe some insight on who they are or what their kid's about. I hope so. I, I hope I hope we're helping. I mean, so sometimes up at the U, people ask me, like, well, what do you do on that podcast? And so I talk, you know, I say, well, it's an addiction recovery podcast. Mm-hmm. And I tell them kind of how the format of the show goes. And, and then, um, but... I also have been including lately when people ask me what we're doing uh, is to talk about like, well, it's actually a little bit broader than just that. I mean, we do talk about mental health and we talk about substance abuse under that broad umbrella of mental health and how a person's drug of choice, their DOC, might have started off as a self-medication for a mental health issue. You know, feeling anxious, feeling depressed. Uh, how many times have we had people come in and say the first time they drank or used a drug, they realized, oh, this is how other people feel. They're not scared to be out in public all the time. They can talk to girls. They can do these things that I can't do. And so that DOC starts off as actually a treatment for a mental health issue. Yeah. Anxiety, depression. Yeah. Uh, we hear that a lot, right? All, all the time. I'm, yeah. I'm least three times a month. Well, so let's get it back to you then. Yeah. So what do you think? Like, do you think that it was, I know you started partying when you were younger and that's pretty within normal limits for kids and Mm -hmm. going to keggers up in Turkey Flats. 
Is it turkey flats? Yeah. Yeah. But once you got older and it became much more of a problem, do you think there was a sort of self-medicating aspect to it for you? Um, I was insecure. Um, Which people will say, somebody listening, right? Sorry to interrupt, but people will say, ah, that can't be. He's on television. He's on the radio. And I will tell you, performers are, are of all types are often plagued with insecurities and anxieties. Well, there's a lot of vulnerability that goes into being a performer and to being on all the time because basically you're putting it out there for everyone to judge, to either love, like, hate, whatever it may be. And if you're not prepared for the the negative comments, it can really throw you for a loop. And so- And you're going to get them no matter how great you do. We'll get them on this podcast. Oh, yeah. You know, and so that's what it is. So I was very insecure- uh, I was, I had anxiety, um, you know, like situational anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still get it to these days before, and I'll get in front of big groups and I will still get it. It's the butterflies and it's not as bad as it used to be, but it would, I mean, I'm telling you before I'd go speak to big groups before I got sober, it was a 24 ounce beer that I would drink before to go do it thinking I needed that. And they were going to get a better me because I did do that. Yeah. And so there was a lot of insecurity, a little bit of anxiety. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. Can I, can I self-disclose something on this show? I've never even told you this. Yeah. Um, So, so I've been a psychologist for 20 years and I've always been a clinical uh, professor at, you know, in that time. So that means I teach quite a bit. I don't teach undergraduate classes, um, but I have done that for to help people out. Uh, I've taught at the medical school on lectures that you have, you know, 200 people there. Um, now it's like on Zoom and there'll be 100 people on the Zoom thing. And I have my residents that I teach regularly. And it's just been in the last year and a half or so, maybe two years, where I've started to have what I would consider performance anxiety. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that strange? I mean, it's, it's been an interesting experience for me and it's weird because I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm having an anxious reaction to going on to talk about something that I'm not worried about talking about because I know this particular subject in and out. Maybe I've lectured on it uh, 50 times and uh, I'm talking to people that I'm not insecure about them because, you know, they're, they're my students and we're all good that way, but it's just an anxious feeling. And uh, I, I have to, you know, that that's weird to kind of be third party observing yourself going like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm having the anxiety. So why that do you I think you help are people with? Um, I think it's it has to do with um, just kind of my self-evaluation of where I'm at in my life and my career. Um, age actually plays a role in things like depression and anxiety. It's not uncommon for a person to get over 50. I'm 51, almost 52. And, you know, they, your, your biology changes, your satisfaction with life changes and depression, anxiety can be a new experience for you. Uh, it's not that I've never been anxious before, but I've never been anxious in this setting. You know, when I was younger, I because you're I always really so put together. That. That's why we got you on the radio back then. That's why I got you on the TV, and that's why I got you on the host. The thing I love about you is that yeah. you can sit down behind a mic and you can jump in on any conversation and add value. And you don't seem to second guess your thoughts. You own what you say, and you're willing to listen to other people's. And that's not a lot of. A lot and of people, I, it's fun. Yeah. Like I'll be honest, I enjoy it. And usually, once I get started teaching. 
then that goes away. Yeah, same with me. And the interaction with the students always makes me like feel better. It doesn't happen every time. I had a, a lecture yesterday and I really enjoyed it. Didn't feel any of the anxiety. But I do a lot of meditation and mindfulness work. And that's been fortunate. I find myself, I, I count myself lucky mm-hmm. to be in the field that I'm in and to have the interest in studying and practicing meditation like I do because I, I'm not tempted to turn to a substance to make my anxiety go away. But I think about somebody who doesn't have that fortunate tool set that I have. Mm -hmm. And if they felt the way I felt at times going on and realizing, oh, well, I've got to go on. There's 200 people waiting to hear from me. I can't just walk away. Can't reschedule this. Um, uh, You know, I'm not Axl Rose. I can't cancel last minute. I went to his (laughs) concert, bro. (laughs) I went to, yeah, he was just here two weeks ago. Did he show up? Yeah. And he he sang. and Morrissey are the two that always like, because I I had tickets for Morrissey last fall right before the show. No, Axl showed up. Here's the thing about Axl. Uh, he's a great entertainer. His high kicks aren't so high anymore. <laughs> His high voice is not so high anymore. Yeah. But he gave the people what they wanted. I'm sure. It was and a great it was show. an amazing show. And to see the group band together and sing uh, "Sweet Child of Mine" and you know all the hits from "Appetite for Destruction," it was yeah. awesome. What I do tell you is there were a bunch of people our age in their fifties, yeah. dressing like they're in their twenties. Yeah, that yeah. shouldn't have it been. It doesn't look good. You know, it, it was, does not look it, good. It was awesome. No. it was. I mean, it's just as fun as a concert was the people watching. Oh, I'm sure. But when those hits came out, I mean, everybody felt 16 again. Yeah, and the energy was there, and it transported you back to when you were 16. Yeah. uh, Driving around, I used to hang out with this guy. His name was Bryce Shoop. And uh, he drove his mom's Toyota. And yeah. we listened to that album nonstop. Oh, yeah. And then when one part would come on, he goes, you know where you are, baby? And we'd be like, yeah. He goes, you're in the Yoda, baby. The Yoda. Because <laughs> we were always in the Toyota. That's and, awesome. And, I mean, even now, it puts a smile on my face, yeah. brings me back to a fond time. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was cool. You know, you, you kind of segued in, and I don't know if you did that on purpose, uh, but you were talking about meditation. Yeah. And you recently have been doing some research to get a higher medi- meditation certificate, right? So, you know, you, you get to be uh, into your career for a while, and it gets a little stagnant, and it's nice to certify in different things, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been working on a certification. It's a workplace mindfulness certificate. Uh, Certified Workplace Mindfulness Facilitator. It's a, it's a long, silly name. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I, so it's just one of the certifications I'm working on. Um, and it's, it kind of trains you to work in groups in, in business settings. Yeah. So for those who don't know, meditation and mindfulness is something that I use quite regularly in my recovery. Mm-hmm. And meditation is something that I'll do if I'm laying in bed at night and something comes upon me and I feel like I'm having a panic attack or mm-hmm. something and I just want to calm the noise down. I just want to make it go away. Normally, five years ago, I'd have reached for a beer. I'd have got up in the middle of the night. I'd have went down to the fridge. I'd have grabbed a cold beer out there. I'd have drank drank it, saved about two minutes. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't go away, I'd have another beer. Yeah. I no longer have that option. I'm glad. And so now I do deep breathing yeah. and I do square breathing and that's my meditation. Yeah. And I let the thoughts float by me like a cloud mm-hmm. and I deal with the ones that I need to deal with. The ones that I know I can't deal with them, I send them on their way because I know they'll come back around. Yeah. And so I kind of put a priority on them. And uh, mindfulness is, is something that I very, very much cherish. And so for those who don't know, what is mindfulness? 
Well, that was a good example of a mindful behavior. You know, you focusing on your breathing to calm yourself down. Mindfulness is essentially using different techniques to bring your attention into the moment that you're in. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, it gives your brain sort of that rest. We've talked, I think, before about people who overfocus on the past Mm -hmm. have have regret, a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda thoughts, and therefore more depression than the rest of us. Those who focus on the future? Yep. Are always worrying about what's next, how they're going to handle it, and what's going to be. So and they so, have more anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're right in the present, in the now, because that's all we have control of over right now. And that's a very mindful statement: is the now, being in the now, connecting with the now. And so, utilizing your senses is a simple way to do that. You know, what do you smell? What do you see? What, what, what how does this desk feel? In recovery, you know? the, the a couple of people had this practice where if they needed to do that, they would look around the room and they go touch five things blue or say five things red and to kind of bring them into the bring now. Bring them into the present moment. Yeah. Uh, breathing is my favorite, simple, but very, very effective mindfulness tool. Um, and and focusing on your breathing doesn't have to be a fancy meditation like you're saying. Square breathing, explain it to everybody what square breathing so is. So basically I inhale for 15, I hold for 15, I exhale for 15. And then I do it again. Okay. So it forms a square. Yeah. And so you do that kind of creates four sides, right? Mm-hmm. And you can change like how long you breathe in and out and all of that. But that's a way of focusing on something in the present. And then breathing itself has the benefit of slowing down your heart rate. When your heart rate slows down to a better baseline, your adrenaline dries up, your cortisol goes away in your system, your muscles relax. So it has this kind of positive snowball effect in your body. You know, the first couple of weeks I was in recovery, uh, I wasn't all there because I was still coming off of the medicine, that event and all that. But I remember somebody telling me, said something, if you focus on hearing your breath, you can't think. You know what I mean? Your mind won't go other. You can't other, wander to You can't places, wander. Yeah. And so if you do that... It will bring you in the now. It will calm those. But it, And it's not as easy. I remember when I sat down for the first time, they go, we're going to work on breathing. I go, this is going to be stupid. <laughs> I already 40, got that covered. I'm 45. I'm pretty sure I got breathing <laughs> handled. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you know, and they're like. I mm. always joke with people like breathing to stay alive. You got that covered. Breathing to relax and improve your cognitive functioning you need to work on. And it does work. Yeah. It, it, there, there's something to it. In fact, meditation studies with a functional MRI, a functional MRI is like a pic, it's a movie of your brain and how it's functioning. Uh-huh. So they're pretty expensive studies to do, but the ones that are out there have clearly shown, and I'll use a term and explain, your prefrontal cortex density increases. Now, what that means is the front part of your brain, the density of it, the thickness of it increases in as little as eight weeks with regular Uh, meditation. And what is that responsible for that? Well, first of all, think about what I just said. You just affected your brain. It's like building a muscle. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like we kind of take for granted that if you go to the gym and you work out and you eat protein, you can actually see your muscles get bigger, right? That's why they got all the mirrors, I guess, at the gym. Um, but, But by doing meditation, they can actually measure your brain's uh, improvement, its thickness. You're not creating new uh, brain cells. No. What you're doing is strengthening, strengthening them, and can and that can be measured with a video. To me, that blows me away. Like the science of that is so cool. But why is that part of the brain important? Well, that is our most human part of our brain. It's executive function, meaning judgment, reason, foresight, focus, problem solving. 
managing their other systems of our brain, like our emotional systems. All of that is housed in that prefrontal cortex. Is that also the part of the brain that gets hindered when we introduce alcohol, drugs? Um, absolutely. That's why when people say to me, well, is it really that big a deal for somebody under the age of 24 to be smoking weed every day or drinking alcohol? I say, absolutely it is because you are robbing yourself if you're the person doing it or if you're the adult allowing it, you're robbing them of full brain development. You're stunting their growth. Absolutely you are in a very real way. So the cool thing about that is that's what got me interested in mindfulness and meditation in the first place were the studies because before that I thought it was kind of hippie nonsense. Oh, yes. Yeah, the voodoo you know, that like, you oh, do. Yeah, everybody feels good if you just sit there and relax, right? Yeah. Like that's what I thought. And You're I, be I'm making embarrassed. making your own pants and smelling patchouli. I, yeah. <laughs> I was embarrassed that that was my ignorant uh uh, thought about it, but it was ignorance because I, I didn't know anything about it. But I recall uh, you talking about going back to the MRI mm -hmm. uh, back in the days for pain uh, relief mm -hmm. that you could see that you can actually get pain relief because of meditation and mindfulness. Yeah, so we have uh, we were fortunate here at the University of Utah to have Eric Garland who is a world-famous uh, researcher in this area. Mm -hmm. And his research has shown that you you have, so sort of like with the running versus the meds, uh, opiates versus uh, mindfulness and meditation for pain management, uh, they're at least the same in the short run, but in the long run, the mindfulness and the meditation wins because it has no side effects that are negative and you continue to strengthen the brain so you have this exponential growth and you can manage your pain more effectively over time without addiction and side effects of opiates. It's a it's tremendous research. So with this new certification, uh, what kind of things have you learned? Has there been an aha moment? Is there something that you were like, holy cow, this is... Well, I mean, uh, I've been doing it long enough that I don't know I've had a tremendous aha moment, except for in the realm of self-compassion. And that's another thing that I think those of us that are of our age group, we're kind of like, you know, we have this attitude that if you're hard on yourself, you're going to succeed. No. That's the football coach mentality. Sorry, football coaches out there. But, but like I'm, the old school football coach mentality. Well, right? it was celebrated in the 80s and 90s movies where somebody would do something wrong. They'd be like, you're so stupid. You will do better, do better. Yeah, yeah. And if you're talking to yourself like that, how do you think other people are going to talk to you? So the, the fear for a lot of people is if I ease up on myself, mm -hmm. if I'm kind to myself, if I'm compassionate with the things that I'm struggling with, then I'm going to slack off and never accomplish it. I'm just so making I, excuses. I have to whip it. I have yeah. to. I have to really drive myself, and that usually results in people doing a lot of negative self-talk, for lack of a better term, putting yourself down. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm an idiot. And I can admit that that's always been something I've struggled with. Yeah. Is that sort of negative self-talk to maybe not even purposefully, but with the intention of like, let's get going, Matt. Come on, you yeah, got to do this. I'm trying to be right? your cheerleader. Now the truth is being being tough and focused and being able to grind out hard things is is an asset. But the the current research shows that people who practice self-compassion do that better and more effectively every time than people who beat themselves up. Well, and it goes back to uh, my day in recovery and the 45 days that I spent inpatient. Uh, we started the, every day with daily affirmations mm -hmm. and a gratitude journal and, and talking about that. And you want to talk about tough? 
Talk about being in a situation that you don't want to be in. Your whole world could be crumbling behind you, and you've got to sit down on a couch, and you've got to talk about things that you're grateful for or tell yourself things that you love about yourself. Because I can tell you, for those first three weeks, there was nothing that I loved about myself. And I I was grateful about a couple of things, but I had to come up with three things every day. And then what you do when you start looking at that list and you're like, holy cow, I've got a lot of things to be grateful for. And there's a lot of things about me. There's a ton of research on gratitude. If people are interested in that, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. Yeah. And if you want to research uh, the word gratitude and Martin Seligman, who's a researcher, you're going to come up with a lot of great research on what they call gratitude letters. I think we've talked about that on the show before. Yeah. And and I think it's a good time to do it again. And we'll bring it up a little later on in the month. But gratitude is the attitude to have. I mean, it really is. Self-compassion, compassion for yourself and gratitude for others uh, really is a game changer for uh, most people's mental health. Uh, so I would say, yeah, self-compassion, it resonates with me because I think it's something I need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, I, in that vein, most people our age probably really need to work on that. Be honest with how you talk to yourself. And if you want to, we can do a quick sort of little uh, exercise to illustrate the point. Ooh, I love exercise. Do that? We're doing the muscles or the brain? We're, well, it's going to be both. Okay. We're going to do both. I'm in. And so if you're listening... Uh, this is a, you know, don't do this while you're driving, but if, if you can find a place to, that you can or hit pause here and when you get home, yeah. And, and this is a good exercise to do. It only takes a, we'll do a short version of it. Okay. Um, but then we'll talk about it afterwards. So if you and Josh will do it, then you guys can give us some feedback on what you think. Do I got to stand up? No, you can sit down. Okay. It's relaxing. It's a relaxing thing. Okay. Okay, So the first thing we're going to do is to try to get in a mindful space we're going to what i'd like you to do is just you know if it's comfortable to you go ahead and sit in a way that you can maybe let your head hang forward a little bit if you like to close your eyes this would be a good time to do that if not just sort of unfocus your gaze and we're going to sit here and in trying to get uh just sort of grounded in the moment we're going to start with a slow deep breath and i want you to go ahead and breathe in nice and slow and just take a moment to notice the sensation of the air filling up your lungs, and then you hold it for a moment, and then you exhale. So let's go ahead and do that. Breathe in and out. And then just take a moment to pause. How do, how do my shoulders feel? How do my arms feel? Do I sink into my chair a little bit more? We're in the moment here. Let's do one more breath like that. Go ahead and breathe in. And out. Then back to your normal breathing. And we're just going to enjoy the relaxation and the groundedness that we're kind of creating right now. And I want you to, for while you're in this good state, I want you to take your dominant hand and I want you to make a fist. And I want you to squeeze that hand real tight. And this hand's going to represent taking care of business, protection. Squeeze it good and tight. Make it a little uncomfortable. That hand is going to be the hand that represents all the hard things you do to take care of business every day, to take care of yourself and your family, uh, the sacrifices you make to to get through each day, pay your bills, excel at your job, be a good partner, husband or wife, parent, child, 
that hand is really working hard for you. I want you to focus on how important that hand is to stay closed and tight. Now I want you to take your other hand and I want you to try to pry those fingers open. Your, your, right, your dominant hand's going to stay closed, but your other hand's going to try real hard. Try to pry those fingers and open that hand up. Why can't you do it? Do it. Try harder. Just pull those fingers open. Doesn't work. Can't do it. Think about the feelings that you're having while you're trying to do that. How it feels physically. It's frustrating. Can't get that hand open. I'm upset with it. Then I want you to take a break for a second. Don't release the hand yet, but take your other hand and cup it underneath your fist. And instead of trying to pry that hand open, I want you to just sort of acknowledge you appreciate that hand and all the hard work it's doing. That hand is working hard for you and it's doing important things in your life. It's taking care of business. It's protecting you and your family. I want that hand to cup it, to hold it and support it. Now I want you to focus on how your fist feels. How's it feeling? Are you frustrated or do you feel supported? Okay, let's go ahead and let our shake it out. Let those fingers relax. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. That's kind of a silly little exercise, but I, I want to ask you, and if Josh wants to chime in, he I don't know if Josh is paying attention to us. I was trying to be mindful. But uh, when you were trying to pry your right hand open, the hand that's that's representing all your hard work in mm -hmm. life, um, how did how did your hand feel? Not emotions yet, but just how did your hand feel? Um, was in it, conflict. Yeah, it was in conflict. Was it comfortable? Did it kind of hurt? Like you? No, yeah, no, it, yeah, yeah. yeah it's tense, right? You feel your fingernails digging into your palm. Yeah, that kind I mean, of thing. You can see, yeah. yeah. I mean, I got nails there. Yeah, yeah, I can see your marks on your hand. Yeah, and then emotionally, what feelings would you assign? Frustrated. That experience. Yeah. Frustrated. Yeah. I mean, one part of my body was like, open it up. And this other one was like, no. And so that's where the conflict and frustration. I was like, I'm in control of this. I should, 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 should be, able be able to, to do, do it. it but, but you can't. No. And it just makes you frustrated. Yeah. And, yeah. Versus now compare it to back to just how the hand feels when you were supporting the hand instead of trying to pry it open, when you were cupping underneath it and giving it a, a place to rest. Uh, physically, how did your hand feel? I felt strength. Yeah. I mean, I felt supported. I mean, for lack of a better word, I mean, yeah. it, 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 I felt help. Did you notice a lessening of of the digging into your own palm kind of feeling? Yeah, there was there was yeah. a release of tension. Still had a fist, yeah. but it wasn't painful. It wasn't uh, stressful. It, it didn't feel like so much of a fight. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. And then, what emotions would you assign it at that time? You felt frustrated before. How did you feel when you were supporting your hand? Comforted. Yeah. I mean, it, felt, it felt better, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, I mean, I still was holding it tight, but yeah. it, it didn't hurt as bad. Yeah. I mean, if that's, 
Yeah, yeah. So this is a this is obviously sort of a, a mindful exercise and a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you think about yourself as, or that part of you that is grinding it out every day, the tough part of you, and we all have it, right? Mm-hmm. If you're getting up and going to work, or if you're a student going to school, if you're supporting yourself and other people, you're paying your bills. You know, you're trying to be a good citizen, and and it's it's a lot of work. It's, it's exhausting. Yeah, it's mundane and it's tough though. And you can see the difference between how you treat yourself. If you, how much longer? I noticed uh, that during the first exercise when you're trying to pry your hand open, you eventually quit before I told people to quit. Mm-hmm. And most people do because that experience is exhausting and you can't keep going as long as you think you can. In the second exercise, you didn't quit early. And, and being supported, you can actually hold that fist a lot longer than you can under the first conditions when you're having to fight yourself. So self-compassion, if you think of just about the language I use about myself towards myself every day, my self-talk, mm-hmm. is it the first style? Beating myself up, telling myself I got to work harder, that I'm not good enough, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm fat, whatever it is that you say to yourself, versus the second one, which is compassionate. Now, compassion doesn't mean lies. No. And it doesn't mean you're letting things off the hook. You're not saying like, oh, I don't need to go to work today. You're saying you're you're having compassion for the hard things you do every day. You're supporting yourself. You're saying, boy, that was a really tough meeting. I don't think I did my best in there. I'm, you know, I'm going to take a break and regather and try to, you know, resolve some of these issues at work. Or I had an argument with my teenager you know, and I, I don't think I was my best there, but you know what? I really tried hard and I think I can approach that situation with them I learned something. in a different way. Yeah. So learning how to also be directly compassionate with yourself and identifying what you do do well. You know what? I had a tough day today, but I went into work with a good attitude and it could have been a lot worse because I really brought my A game today. I nailed the TPC reports. I did this good. Right. But we don't do that as a society. We focus on what didn't work out well. That yeah. becomes the focus. So, and the negativity. And so when you're doing that, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's things that need to get done. And I can fight against it, which is going to be futile. It's not going to work. Or I can support it and figure out how to get through right. it. And so that was the benefit of the other hand. Right. It was like, hey, we're fighting something, but you know what? I'm going to be here with you. And it's not going to be good, but we're going so to get we, through it together. We did this uh, exercise uh, in the training that I'm doing. And this training is actually a worldwide training which Zoom allows us to do now. And there are a bunch of people in this training, not too many, because I feel like I know most of them at Mm -hmm. this point. And a few people choked up and started to get emotional as we discussed it afterwards because of the realization that they're like, I'm I'm like the first scenario. I'm really hard on myself, but I've got to keep going every day and, and do the things I need to do. If I don't support myself, how I, I don't have how many more days like this do I have before yeah. something? Well, you you quit early, yeah, and that's what most people do in that exercise, and that's what happens to us in real life when we beat ourselves up, when we don't have compassion, when we're hard on ourselves. We succumb to the negative talk. We have more physical stress. We feel higher rates of depression. We give in to our anxiety. And a stat that I think I've brought up before, but a lot of people don't realize is uh, you look at businesses around the country, the vast majority of the real reason why people call in sick to work is mental health. Yeah. It is not. I don't have one more day in me. I I can't deal with this stress. 
And so it's it's a mental health related call in, even though our culture only really until recently supports the the physical health. Yo, know, I've got the flu. I'm sick. I can't come in. Cough, yeah, don't cough, come cough. in. Don't come in. Right. But, you know, my head's in but a funky space. Real well, we need you reason in. is that they're really down. And so self-compassion is a way to help you keep going and to be resilient and to support yourself. Like what, what I give to other people starts with what I give to myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you listen to the whole show today, you know that I've admitted that this is something I work on. Like this is not an uncommon thing for people to work on. Be, having real self-compassion, I think is a challenge because we do make mistakes. We're imperfect. We, we, we don't do our best all the time. Uh, We're human. Yeah. And so that can be the focus, or you can say, I'm going to work on those things. Remember, you don't give yourself a pass to be a slacker. We're not lying to ourselves. We're not excusing ourselves. Right. And that's, I have to say that over and over. So people understand this isn't uh, give yourself a free pass and be a slacker and tell yourself you're great when you're not doing great. What you're saying to yourself is you're working really hard and it's been a hard week, hasn't it, Matt? We acknowledge that you're trying yeah, and that you can do better, but you are doing some stuff that's pretty good. And you're doing things that actually support you so you can keep going and you can be successful. So wow. when people talk about mindfulness, there are a lot of different applications. It's not just, you know, see five blue things in the room. That helps. That's great to bring your attention back, but it can get a lot deeper than that. And Self-compassion and mindfulness is a great um, tool. In fact, if you're interested in this, there is a, there's a book called Self Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Workbook. Um, and I... Um, you Google it, you're fine. I'm going to Google the, the author because I think I... For, I'm going to say the wrong name. Kristen Neff, yeah. So Kristen Neff is the lead author on a lot of the really powerful um, research on self-compassion. She's a psychologist and she's teamed up with this other author to do this workbook and workbooks are a little, it doesn't sound like something you want to do, but a workbook is, is more like an interactive book. When you're a kid, did you ever read the, you know, choose your own adventure books all the time? Yeah. This isn't quite that fun, but it is more beneficial where you're, you're going through and you're interacting with the book and it's, it's helping you assess where am I at? Mm-hmm. on my levels of self-compassion or, or you know, negative self-talk. And then what are some exercises I can do and how would I do them? And so it, it's an interactive experience going through a workbook like that. So if you think that that's something you could benefit from, it's, it's, a, it's a cheap way, 20 bucks, cheap way to get yourself feeling a lot better. Well, here's the thing that I would say, just do it. You spent 20 bucks on stupider stuff. And this Starbucks one just Starbucks and whatever, yeah. You know what I mean? It might just work. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and and I don't mean it like that, but I'm just saying, you know, don't let 20 bucks hold you back. Well, you know, people hear the word workbook and all that, but the truth is it's a great experience. I have a copy. I have several of my uh, clients and patients who uh, work through it with me um, and, and kind of try to support them. But, it, you know, it's something you can do outside of a therapy session. You can, anybody can do it on their own. Um, it's simple and straightforward. It, it's not super complicated. That exercise we did today is not super complicated. No. And the concepts aren't super complicated, but they're very applicable and beneficial. So anyway, I, to, I'm living a better life since I have, you know, practiced, and strive to practice more meditation and mindfulness. See, I told you guys, in, my friend's my wicked life. smart. Yeah. 
<laughs> he is. I mean, really. And and that was just a great kind of representation of what Dr. Matt brings to the podcast. And, you know, and that's what I love about it. And, and you're right. There is so much more that we tackle on this podcast than just addiction. It's well-being. It's mental well, health. It's it's physical health. Well, it's, I see addiction and what I love to focus on the process of recovery is, you know, mental health is is that it's the same, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all part of it. And if we have a broader view of any problem, we're more successful in solving it. If you think that the only way to not be an addict is to be sober, you're going to have a real uphill battle. It's going to be tough. But if you can see the big picture and Mm -hmm. realize my whole person can get healthier, then I think that those are the beautiful stories we have on the show all the time where I, I, I don't know about you, but some of these people, I can't even imagine them as as a on the streets addict, but they've been there. Yeah. And now they're so healthy and focused and motivated and they're living their best life, which is an understatement. And it's just hard to even imagine this person, the story they're telling could have actually been their experience because they're so broad in their recovery. It's mental health, it's physical health, it's nutrition, it's exercise, it's 12 steps, it's mindfulness, it's ice baths, it's changing their whole life to to finally be the person the the best person that they can be and it's it beautiful. just puts an explanation point on the fact that recovery is possible absolutely and that's what i love doing this podcast with you dr matt thank you for an enlightening wonderful talk well, i hope that was okay i know i think it was great and and i'm gonna go home and i'm gonna get that workbook and i'm gonna sit down with my kids and we're gonna do a little uh that's the stuff i like and, to and have some fun about it. it is fun yeah and it is mindfulness is a great thing to do with kids children can learn better than we can, these sorts of things. Yoga with a five-year-old does make a difference. Mindfulness with a seven-year-old does make a difference. You betcha. It's uh, giving them lessons and tools to use throughout their whole life. Thank you, Dr. Matt, and thank you guys for uh, allowing us to do what we do in another episode of uh, Project Recovery. And Matt, Project Recovery is what? It's KSL Podcast, my friend. I love it. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.